This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of remembering the tremendous achievements of a great man, Richard Taholka, our friend and mentor. Here's to you, Richard. Oh, yeah. Richard Taholka uh, was one of the founding partners of Tacky Tack Games. And this game company came into existence very shortly after uh, Dungeons and Dragons, TSR, came into existence. And so it was there at the very forefront of all that we consider to be gaming, especially RPG gaming. So we wanted to talk about how TriTac, and specifically Richard, was a visionary and how he led the way for a lot of different games. Now, we, you know, we can't draw lines between here to here to here like, you know, James Burke and Connections, but we can talk about the things that he did do first and how what he did was revolutionary in comparison to what was going on at the time. You know, what was the state of gaming, especially RPG gaming, at that time? Well, I do know that the history of gaming back in, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, I know that D&D came from Chainmail. Basically, Gary Gygax and Dave Hardison, right. it was a miniatures game, and they wanted to expand on it, make it more role-playing, hence Dungeons & Dragons. The history of gaming, uh, which which was before Dungeons & Dragons, was miniatures, okay, was all about trying to um, model uh, re- reality, trying to model military um, uh, operations. It was designed at, at a certain point, it became a teaching tool for soldiers, especially officers, to teach them how to to learn strategy, how to do things on a uh, battlefield without actually having to risk large large numbers of men and the officers themselves. You know, nothing, of course, can ever take the place of real, you know, you know bloodied in combat. But still, you you wanted to be able to give your officers as much experience as possible. So from that came other, you know, various miniatures games. And so everybody was always trying to come up with a better better system for representing these things. So when Dungeons and Dragons came out, we had them trying to model the fantastic in a realistic system. And you and if you've seen first edition, you can say that well they were kind of successful. But that was the goal. That was the goal that they were all trying to do, John. They were trying to create as realistic a system as possible without making it completely unplayable. Because there's some jokes online, um, some cartoons where they go and they say, all right, you know, we do this, this, we, che- we check five tables, we move other things, and that uh, at the end of a half hour of calculations, you know, that um, soldier right there moves forward a half inch. So, you know, that's not the goal of role-playing games. But there was a system involved, and the idea was to try to make it as realistic as possible without becoming incredibly impossible to play. It's called Rollmaster, and it's, and it's myriad. I mean, they're making fun of Rollmaster and all its tables. That's, that was Murphy, Murphy's Rules. The thing about Rollmaster was that it had, you know, like a different chart basically for every weapon depending upon what kind of 
thrust you wanted to make, whatever, you got a bonus or a minus, whatever kind of armor. They basically covered the gamut. And for people that really wanted that, you know, that that was the game for them. And it was spell ma- and they basically el- elongated it. Now, what Richard and Tritac tried to do was they, first of all, tried to create a universal game system. Okay, and and I don't think that uh, Dungeons and Dragons originally was attempting to do that, even though they did talk about using it in things like Boot Hill and Metamor, you know, and later on in, in some the 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 one where the uh, it was uh, the Barrier Peaks where they had a spaceship, you know, that crash landed in the D and D game. The uh, Metamorphosis Alpha was sort of like D and D with mostly with a fairly simplified version of D and D. I remember you know looking at it going, this is D and D, but most of a lot of the variant stuff and a lot of the, yeah, especially the grappling rules were taken out. It was actually made a, a fairly straightforward and streamlined system, but it never satisfied. So Richard's trying to create a universal system that he can use in a uh, science fantasy, which would be fringeworthy. And a um, a very fantasy game, which was Bureau Thirteen, and a pretty hard, crunchy game, FTL Twenty Four Forty Eight. And he wanted a, a game system he could use in all of them without having to make any major changes in the base system. And that was the that was what Tritac did. That was the Tritac system. It was his second rule system. His first system was, of course, with Timeline uh, Games, where he came up with the Morrow Project r- rule system. And, uh, yeah, I, I, even the second, even the latest edition, I don't really... I, I still have things I don't care I don't care about in it. Especially that there's no random damage for bullets. There you have the E factor. We're now talking about the very earliest time. you know. And so the games we have out at this point are uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, we have uh, Traveler. I think Tunnels and Trolls had come out, which was basically a variant on Dungeons and Dragons. And we had um, and um, and we had the Tritax system. Had Palladian come out yet? Oh God, let's see. I don't 80, think it so. Was the early eighties. It might have. I think the Palladium role playing game might their fantasy game from which the Defilers campaign. The Defilers Gaming Group, of which Terry Williams, I believe, was a member of that. 1983. Um, think, yeah, so it was just starting. Yeah. And and, and for superheroes, there there was Hero, and but the Hero was beat out by Superhero 2044. There was also Superworld, I think. Mm-hmm. I think Cyworld yeah. was another one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, Superhero Twenty Four Forty was the uh, Forty Four was the first superhero game, and it unfortunately was a very wasn't a very good one. Well, none of them were very good. Uh, you know that that was the thing. This was all revolutionary. This was all you know experimental, and that's one of the things that I, in some ways, I miss about the early days. It was how experimental it was. I mean, you look at Richard's system, you know, you look at the Tritag system, you, and especially if you look at Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition, okay, you have a whole bunch of different systems for different things. I mean, the, 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 the martial arts system is not fully integrated into the combat system, and the, the, the damage system isn't really integrated into other things in the healing, and there's a whole lot of things that aren't tremendously well integrated. But they're, they're trying like crazy to be able to figure out a way to make them mate together in a, in a way that 
you know, it, the seams weren't terribly visible. And so you, and, and if you had to make a couple of changes, that was fine. You know, uh, that's one of the reasons why I created the, um, uh, the TS, uh, I'm sorry, the TriTac system utility was because you could th go and plug in all the various factors like uh, uh, movement, uh, gun, you know, type, bullet type, uh, armor type, um, you know, uh, 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 things like uh, day, night lighting, um, cover, all those things. And with a press of a button, it would calculate through all the tables and give you a result on a single sheet uh, where the GM could just read out to the player, okay, this is what happened. I know that in, uh, that under the worst case scenario, it actually worked its way through 13 tables in order to come up with the final result. I think that would be like either in special, really special conditions for for weapons fire, or you have people using active offense and passive defense and all the other various things in martial in the martial arts combat would get kind of hairy sometimes too. Right. Well, in this particular case, uh, it also involved them getting knocked down and rolling down a hill and breaking some bones. Mm. And then have a tr and then have a can of coffee fall on their head. No, no, just, just, I'm just saying, because we had to deal with the, the tumbling damage, we had to deal with the bone breakage, you know, there was, there was the, uh, I mean, and all these things, of course, were optional in the game system, but it was there to try to make it as realistic as possible, and that's what all these guys are trying to do. You mean with the, the detailed body location charts for the TriTac system? Well, that was actually one of the most revolutionary things that Richard did. And uh, he and uh, Bob Sadler uh, went uh, to uh, D.C. and looked at uh, human bodies that had been sliced into one-inch thick, thick chunks. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that exhibit. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And put between plates of glass. And they looked at it and they said, you know, we grid, you know, each... Um, section of the body into a you know into basically a six by six grid, we can go and calculate out what the penetration resistance would be for a bullet you know or a knife or something like that, and we could actually track damage moving realistically through the body. What what major arteries could be hit? What were the chances? So because they can see there's a lot of arterial in one section, that's going to have a higher chance of bleed, extra bleeding damage. And they built that all into this massive, like, 10-page long chart that literally just kind of, you know, uh, went through each of the parts of the body, the arm, the leg, the head, the torso, the abdomen. And... You could model damage realistically because of that, and nobody had ever done that before. I was there when Richard decided to add hydrostatic damage to the tape oh, to the game yeah, system. Oh yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was there when he we, we sat down. We, when we all sat down, it was like round robin. We just did a little bull session, and we talked about what 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 you need to worry about. And he came up with hydrostatic damage and hydrostatic damage values for all the weapons. That was like oh, yeah. second edition of the rules that when it came out, they include hydrostatic damage. So now you get now you do you get to track damage, you get to track how much damage it does to all the adjacent cell adjacent portions of the body as it goes through. Well, and and to be clear to our listeners, hydrostatic damage was 
the result of the shock wave caused by a bullet going through a person's body. So it wasn't just the hole that it drilled through the body that was causing damage. It actually, the compression caused muscles and, 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 and various things to, to rupture and, you know, and, and increase the amount of damage or at least increase the chance of, of, of additional damage when, you know, depending upon the weapon that you're using. It didn't apply to things like uh, knives and such because they didn't move quickly enough through the body to cause this effect. I mean, even a normal bullet, you get hit, you're going to get knocked back. It's physics. And so when Rich put that in the book, and I, I mean, I, as I said, I got into TriTac 92, 93, and I'm looking at this concept and I was just blown away that he had put that in there, that it was that realistic. And I didn't know that Rich went to DC and saw the slice human yeah. being to get all that. Well, you remember they did a lot of that for Mara Project, which had some, uh, not as detailed, but it had some body tables in, in it. Was, you know, version one of the body tables was in Mara Project. Okay. I wasn't sure when he did it, but I knew that that was something he did that nobody else had done before. And a lot of people thought that Richard went too far. His, his game system became no longer a heroic game system. It became a, a very realistic and in some ways a punishing game system. Uh, I told everybody that it encouraged non-lethal, non-violent play because when you pulled a gun, somebody was going to die and it might be you because of how damaging you know, this system was. Well, heck, I remember seeing the charts, and to this day, I mean, as I said, I got weird factoids in my head. I remember that getting shot through the pinky on that chart is a 3% chance of death shock. That is how detailed he had this. And, ba and basically, yeah. the things that I heard of these charts, I'd be, wait a minute, TriTech, is that the one with the really long body location chart? And you, yeah. there's no middle of the road. You either yeah. thought, man, that was the coolest thing ever, or like, Oh my God! Combat took three hours because of those charts, and I'm like, "Well, no." Once you know the chart, how the charts work, you, I could, I could during a game, I could whiz through them in less than like three or four minutes. Once you know what you were doing with the charts, bang, you just go right through them. And you didn't have to use all the charts. I mean, there was a lot of simplification, and the problem was is that there, well, there wasn't enough instruction on how to use the charts to avoid some of that because it seemed like the only two choices there was was the simple chart which was roll on this chart oh you got knocked down oh you got wounded you got you know winged or you got shot dead mostly it was get shot dead so you didn't want that chart applied to you so uh, I knew that some people, what they would do is they would use the quick rules on their opponents, but they always insisted on very detailed you know, rules on themselves because th when they built out their armor, they literally would do it piece by piece. They would put like, you know, a super, you know, heavy strip of armor metal over their heart and over the places they had the most chance of actually getting themselves killed. And that was another thing. The 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 um I don't know about the other systems that, about whether they handled piecemeal armor, but Richard's system because the body was broken down into pieces like this, six by six grid on each body area, you could really trick out your body armor to be very very specific. As far as current Pathfinder OGL, they have, and it's an Ultimate Combat, I believe. 
piecemeal armor that you can, you know, sit there and, okay, a piece from this and a piece from this. And I'm not sure exactly. On, I don't use it in my own game. That's why I haven't really. But I know that they have a means to make, okay, I got this armor here and this armor here, and I'm putting it together piece by piece. I'm pretty sure that they probably have protection values for, like, breastplates and stuff if you're just wearing that and then, like, lesser on the arms. I just don't know how detailed it is. I know they do have rules for it in Ultimate Combat for Pathfinder. The beauty of the of the body tables was you can get the, the, the strange results. Like, when I ran my fringe with the game, one guy got shot in the head twice by, by, by a pair of crossbows. One went over his right eye, one went over his left eye. And that Son of a gun made all his death shock rolls. He was, and he also made all his consciousness rolls. He was still conscious with two bolts sticking off his head. And death shock meant that if you made the roll, the person's heart stopped and had to be resuscitated, or they, they literally dropped to the ground and they were out. And and there was no and, unless somebody resuscitated you, you were dead right there on the spot. It was basically your chance of having a heart attack. Yeah, so you may have a whole bunch of hit points, but all it took was one bullet, and you'd be on the ground dead. It's the equivalent of what is now considered the massive damage rule in D&D. Mm-hmm. Is this the one where it's like if you take 50 points in one shot? That was the original. If you took 50 points from a single attack, then you you know, you know had a, a chance of dying right there on the spot, no matter what your hit points were. This actually had parts broken down by the tenderness of the part of the body that you were hitting. The best place to shoot anybody was between the eyes. You know, on the, you know, right at the bridge of the nose, between the eyes. Ninety-eight percent chance of death shock. Bam, over. Didn't you know? Didn't matter. You know, and and, uh, and that's why we we can't uh, coin the phrase a bullet in the brain is a bullet in the brain. So again, this was something that wasn't in a lot of other games. And so if you wanted to be able to really, you know, say, I want to be able to have a super sharpshooter. I want to be able to, you know, make attacks that can take somebody out in a single round. Something that was impossible for high-level characters to do in Dungeons & Dragons at the time. Richard's system supported it. Uh, it what he did borrow one thing from our project, and that was the accuracy statistic, the accuracy stat, not skill, stat. So yeah, you actually ACC, you, yeah, I remember that. You can actually have a fairly high accuracy, which means you can pick up a gun that you're unfamiliar with and still have a fairly good chance of shooting somebody. It also was a roll-under system. You had to roll under your rating to hit. And if you rolled, I think, was it under, what, two or three? You got a critical you roll under half of what you needed. You put it where you wanted it. It was a uh, D20, so it was I, I like I, I like to call it the shotgun curve. That is, it basically, there was no curve. It was t- entirely random. There, you know, there was no mean in in in, in terms of you know of rolls. So you, you it know, it wasn't like a bell curve on three D six. Yeah. 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 John, there were bonuses you could apply. I mean, uh, all kinds of things. So, yeah, it's a lot easier to roll under half of your roll when you have like a plus 10 on it. You had stats that were modified by skills when it came to combat. But then when you did specifically skill-based things, it was your skill sometimes modified by your stat. So that's where it got a little bit hazy, and that's where it took an experienced GM to use Richard's system effectively. All the other systems that were out there at the time were just as messy. 
Oh yeah, Traveler didn't actually have a map. You had you basically would take line note paper and put your put markers on it and move them up and down the, the line note paper to determine if you're in range or out of range. That was original Traveler Combat. <laughs> right. Now the martial arts system that was in TriTac, uh, the TriTac rules, was was that in the first edition? Yes, it was. He he liked the idea of active. Basically, he, yeah, I think he knew some folks who knew martial arts, and they pointed out that you have active offense, active defense, passive offense, and passive defense, and you also had the Zen of the art. So you would have you take the Zen of the art, and then you would have sub sub skills in that, depending on what 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 martial art you took. Uh, well, no, that that does stand to reason the A O A D P O P D. Uh, yeah. I don't know if many of our listeners knew this. Uh, between 2003 and 2008, I took a composite form of Kung Fu known as Nawaja. It was based off of Jeet Kune Do, which was the art Bruce Lee practice and brought to America. Now, Nawaja stands for internal-external system. Your internal would be your more passive, that would be your passive offense and defense, and the external would be your active offense and defense. Active offense would be like a hard block. If somebody's coming at you with a punch, you use your forearm to knock that punch down. Mm-hmm. Passive defense would be something more like Bagua or Tai Chi, where it's a light brush of the hand to move it away. Active offense would be something like just straight up, you know, karate, taekwondo punch. Passive attack would probably be something like a throw or a um, body push like in Tai Chi that you can it, you use your weight and you sort of curve down and back up and you can lift somebody up off their feet. So I under that's how the active offense, active and passive offense and defense would work in that as far mm-hmm. as how to describe it. The yeah. Zen stuff, I don't... I would take Judo and I would have it like... like, like at five, but then I would also have underneath it act offense five. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. The the the, the overall stat is sort of like the it's all the you know all the exercises you would do, all the things you would do. You know, not necessarily all the strikes, but all the you know the the various. Also, also the mindset. You know, if you're going, you know, if you're if you're going to get get yourself get get one of the higher dans and something, you have to get into the proper mindset because you know it's not just skill. It's tap 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 up here, wipe on, wipe off. You need to get in well, that. Yeah, John. Proper basically, I, I think I can describe it. Yeah. If you have the judo, yeah, it's a basic knowledge of the moves, but it's also more the history, the theory. If you have the AOADPOPD for judo, that is the actual practicum. He covers 17 different forms of martial arts, and he included wrestling and brawling as a martial art. Well, yeah. Richards um, didn't really incorporate much in the area of magic or psi in his early games. Um, and there were a lot, and, and there was probably, you know, it was probably for the best because because of Dungeons and Dragons, there was a ton of competing magic systems out there. You mean no fancy games? So no, no, no fancy, high fancy, low fancy game is what you're referring to then. What I'm saying is, is that, you know, when you see things like that in Richard's game, originally Bureau 13 really didn't, you were just regular people with guns and, and, and banes and such going out and fighting the supernatural. You weren't mages 
you know, and they, they had some rules for priests, but those were kind of, they were still, still fairly limited to what they could do. So uh, there wasn't the, what it, when it came out in 1992, it had a full-blown magic system, full-blown size system. It really, I don't, I don't think it really existed in that level before that. And there were plenty of other game systems that had much better magic and size systems at the time before that. That wasn't something that, you know, that I don't think that he he was a, a leader in that. And frankly, they, there was a lot people. There was a lot of other people concentrating in that area. So you know, like I said, Richard tried to make his games more realistic, and so that kind of got in the way of, of coming up with some of these more fantastical elements. But speaking of his games, he created the very first interdimensional role-playing game. And that was in 1983. There had never been a, an interdimensional role-playing game before, you know. And and fr and frankly, the, the from what I've seen of the ones that followed, not that much. The closest I think that ever came to it was the uh, cross-dimensional stuff that was put out by Steve Jackson's games. Oh no, there was Lords of Creation by Avalon Hill. Oh, I vaguely remember that one. Oh, it, it was so bad. I mean, basically, I, 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 it basically is the game where you, the ultimate skill level was GM. 1983 and 1984. I, I know that that uh, that Fringe really came before the rest because that's one of Richard's claims that has been throughout the years. So this must have come after that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Fringe really came out in 82. So it beat him by a year. And then following that was the very first modern-day supernatural investigation and elimination game, which was Bureau 13. Now, there, there was another game out that was an investigatory game. It, it was uh, called Call of Cthulhu. But that took place in the 20s. It wasn't modern. So that's why Richard got that particular accolade. He doesn't get any uh, particular credit for FTL 2448, uh, because there were plenty of other game systems out there, but uh, it, that took that were space games. Uh, but the uh, what I did like about his game was the fact that he tried to ground it, you know, in a very specific time, you know, twenty four forty eight, and it all used the same system that all of his other games had. And so, yeah, as I said, he tried to create a universal system and use it in all of his games. And so when I tried to play FTL 2448, I didn't have to learn a whole new system, you know, like I had to in, in most other games I tried. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you, you want to play cyberpunk, it's not the same system as cyberspace. It's blue-collar space. Everything else was you either had classes that, like in space opera, you were stuck into a class, or in um, spaceships and spacemen, you, you know, which was a Star Trek ripoff, you were basically crew on a ship, on a ship for the for the Federation or whatever heck they called it in that one, or in Traveler, you were high high ranking NCOs or millionaires flying around. I'm going. It was the first game I think that allowed you to be something you could relate to which was a big difference than all the others out there. His skill-based system was very a la carte. It made sense for you to go and take certain skills that were related to each other and even gain bonuses from them. But if you wanted to be a cook who was also a pilot, there was nothing that kept you from doing that. Yeah, yeah. I noticed yeah. that. Yeah, if you want to be a Debian barman who also did, was a short order cook, you could do that too. 
And there are lots and lots of stories that that's basically the basis for them. It's like you walk into a bar, here's this guy tend to, you know, playing the piano on the side, you know, and you don't think anything about him. And then you find out later on that, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's the number one hit man, you know, for the, you know, the, the, the Carillion Consortium, you know, just happens to like that bar. And that was something that Richard also did that nobody else was doing. Everybody else was trying to create these, you know, these heroes, these her very heroic figures. And Richard constantly went back and said, no, you're an everyday person in extraordinary circumstances. Now go do something extraordinary. And that was his point of view. That was his, you know, uh, was there any other person out there who made an experience system that really promoted peaceable play the way Richards did? Because you got a lot of experience for basically being nonviolent and solving your problems through negotiation or cleverness or working things out, and relatively few from actually just beating the crap out of everybody. Palladium did it. I remember Sambita talking about not having the kill factor because his current system, the way he has it now, and he's had it for like the past 20 years, you get like a thousand experience points for a critical plan that saves the group or a large group of people. But fighting a major menace is only like 350. Well, so he does it, but I'm not sure how the experience system was back in the days of the very early palladium role play fantasy role playing game. Yeah, and Trevor didn't have any experience system. If you wanted to get better at something, you had to go to school. Literally, you had to go find something to train you, and then you could get better in something. You were pretty much when you came when you mustered out of your of your of your railroad um, uh, railroad career structure. You that was it. You'd had to you had to take some sort of training to or, or self training to get better. There was no experience whatsoever, period, zero, zip. Well, in a way, that was the way that D&D &D, uh, was at the time. You could earn, uh, uh, get enough experience to go up a level, but until you found someone to train you, spend the appropriate number of weeks training, spend the appropriate amount of money to not only pay for your trainer, but also for the expenses of training, you couldn't go up a level. I mean, the other systems that are concurrent, Space Opera and Star Frontier. Space Opera it, it, it used a slightly different used a different system. I've actually played it not too long ago, but its experience system was kind of wrapped around, you know, doing things and and filling out missions. Uh, Space Opera, I'm looking up right now. Well, I don't think I don't think that Richard had a, a superior system in the way he did progression. I mean, there were all kinds of different ways, and people had skill trees that you, you could go up and down. Some of them were made a lot more sense and were a lot more integrated. The main thing that I, I thought was you know uh, special about Richard's system was the fact that it was specifically designed to uh, you know to encourage people not to be dicks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 To find solutions that benefited everybody, uh, he didn't support any heroes other than you could play anything you wanted to in his games. The experience point system really was toward the people that could work together and and do things that everybody agreed was a good thing. FTL was the first game sci-fi game where getting a ship was not guaranteed. In fact, you almost had to either look into one, or you had to find a way to steal one. 
mean, literally, that was the only way to get a starship. It was not part of the character generation. You never had enough money to buy one of those ships. Well, yeah, they were tremendously expensive. That's why in the example, he wins it in a card game. Yep. You know, the only way I could see it happening would be if someone sent you on some some really dangerous mission and they had to give you a ship, and so your deal was, well, if we survive, we get to keep it. If I didn't go with the original idea of winning it in a card game, that would be the way I would go. I don't really want to talk too much about his... Um, his various tacky tack games, because back then, pretty much every game that came out was like a first. I mean, all these games were so wacky that pretty much nobody else had ever done it. I mean, you know, Westerville State, Escape from Westerville State Mental Hospital, Geriatrics War, uh, a game that didn't come out forever, you know, Viral Vegetable War. <laughs> it was in his catalog for pr over 10 years and had never come out. Now, that system used, I'd call it the TriTech light system. Geriatric Wars and Westerville, they both used the same base system. Richard didn't like reinventing the wheel too much. So he had a light system and he had the squash system and he had the TriTech, you know, main system. And they, and technically, Techie Tech, if you look at it and say, you can make this into a role-playing game. I mean, any of the Techie Tech games could be made into a, what we call a beer and pretzel role-playing game these days. Well, yeah, you could take you could turn it into a D zero scenario and use it. Yeah, sure, you know, but uh, it it wasn't a role playing game and, and needed and all of them. You know, I, I don't think any of them would have stood alone without considerable amount of work. Uh, the closest you came to it were the was was the Papalewampus, uh, basically the the Duck Trooper the, the Duck series. They, they were all various things and weird, and usually they use 2D6 as, as the resolution system or some variance of that, sure. But I'm just saying, is as, far, as far as new, they were all new. Every, pretty much any game that came out like this in those days was new, and nobody else had done it before, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the idea of doing these short little... I mean, that... Sir, I, I, I want to say he may have actually inspired... Uh, um, oh, was it Howard Thompson, the guy who created metagaming? Because that came out soon afterwards. These little pocket games, literal pocket games that spawned an industry called Steve Jackson Games. You know, I mean, you know, Steve Jackson got his start actually over in uh, Tones and Trolls. I, I still have his Monsters, Monsters uh, supplement he wrote for Tones and Trolls where you get to play monsters. It was great, but yeah. We used to, you know, trick out the various vehicles in Bureau 13 using the supplements. It actually, didn't Richard actually say, use car wars if you want to do vehicle combat? One of the things about Richard is that he was humble enough in some areas to say, hey, you know, rather than me trying to reinvent something already good, just go ahead and use it. Of course, car wars operates in, a, was it the three-second turn, the two-second turns? Well, so was TriTac. <laughs> yeah, Richard always wanted to try new things. This is why the later games, such as Incursion, you know, which is body snatchers, more or less, you know, hey, here's the, you know, here's here's the aliens, here are the people who are, are snatching you, and you can take their ship. Sadly, you're far away from Earth, and you have now have to figure out how to find it, or or not. Just simply go, just have fun. Yeah. Now this was before X Files came out. I mean, I was talking to Richard, you know, about different ideas for games. This was at Gen Con. He says, the next big thing is going to be alien abductions. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And I, you know, we'd heard of alien abductions before. I mean, the, you know, Project Blue Book and a various, a various number of UFO books that had been out for quite some time. But nobody had actually written any games about it. And this is a case where Richard basically he had the right idea, but he just didn't he didn't grab the pulse that some you know that other things did because <clears throat> the alien abductions that happened in X Files is about abducting Fox Mulder's sister, and then and he stays on Earth and tries to figure out about this alien conspiracy and what's going on in uh, Incursion. You get abducted and you are now deep in space with no way home. Uh, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and it beat X-Files by one year. Right, but the point was, it was still before. He was, you know, and he he got it right uh, as far as that was what was coming. And a lot of, and that was happening all the time with Richard. I was always amazed at how many times he would say, "No, the next thing is going to be this," and sure enough, it was this. It didn't, it didn't, it certainly didn't always match what he thought was going to happen. But at least he got the broad strokes correct. Yeah, in a way, he was a bit of a pop culture maven. At least in the areas he liked, he was fairly you know, conversant with what was coming down the tube and what was happening. But when I found about the latest anime. Uh, he would go, oh, yeah, you want to watch this? Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> at, at which point, you know, Richard kind of basically plateaued. And there was a lot of reasons for this. Uh, the biggest reason was the fact that his mother died. Okay, and there was a lot of stuff going on right then. Um, and so he spent the next decade or something, you know, uh, going and, and, and coming out with new editions you know the, the the ones that are that got the most attention and, and he's probably best known for was the 1992 editions of of uh, of Bureau 13 not exactly 1992 but close to that. you know Fringeworthy Bureau 13 and uh, FTL 2448 um, which were massive improvements over the previous editions but they were refinements. Uh, and they brought in a lot more material, a lot more stuff, but there wasn't anything really revolutionary about what he was doing at that point. Uh, though I did appreciate the fact that he made an attempt in FTL 2448 at creating a starship construction set. Um, I never got it to quite work the way I wanted, but that might have been a failure on my part rather than the system itself. But, you know, I, I really wanted to say, okay, I want to go and take Richard's game and build starships and then be able to use them in the game. And, um, it, you know, I, I kind of got lost when we started talking about conduits and things. So uh, I'm not sure, I, you know, but he was trying to do that. And I really think that if some of the personal tragedies that happened in Richard's life hadn't happened, the 90s would not have been known for Vampire the Masquerade. It would have been Richard. It would have been Tritac and and um, and White Wolf Studio facing off against each other. The battle between the two of them, because on one hand you had the people that hunted the supernatural, and then you had the other side, the people who were the supernatural. I, I think we would have had a much more interesting decade if the things that had happened in Richard's life hadn't happened. A lot of us try to, you know, promote uh, Tritac during that period of time, but there just wasn't enough uh, action coming out of the main Tritac studio to be able to, uh, you know, to, to fight the, you know, basically the juggernaut that that Vampire became. 
Yeah, and Richard wasn't one of those folks who kept on putting out supplement after looking at you, D and D, with supplement after supplement after supplement <laughs> to keep you buying things. Because you know, uh, sadly, the, the 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 trouble with the with the role playing game market is once you have the book, the only way to get more money out of the players is to come up with adventures and supplements. No, the the only way to get it out of them is to come out with um, a new version of the game. You know, and some sometimes with supplements, but not really adventures, because uh, I tried that, and it you know I did not sell anywhere near what I thought I was going to sell. But you know, the the fact is, is that role playing games has always been a new product driven market, and if you don't get out there with new products on a regular basis, uh, people forget about you. And that's one of the reasons why TriTac was is the biggest, you know, is best kept secret in gaming, was because Richard would come out with a new edition once every ten years, in the in the later two thousands, um, like the last ten years. Richard has come out with a bunch of new games, um, and you know he was you know, working on some, you know, when he passed. So let's think, of, let's talk about them for a second to see if anybody else was do, was doing anything like them. Okay. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is he finally came out with Hardwired Hinterland. Has anybody else come out with a game like this? The closest they'd come to it would be Riverworld. You know, and that's and that's stretching it. I mean, you know, the Hardware Hinterland? Nope. So Hardware Hinterland is a game where you're in an artificial world, but which is a flat plane. And um, you're on an island that's 200 by 200 miles square with corners. Okay, uh, it's separated by 200 miles of water in each direction. So you have a grid. Yeah, you also have what is it a um, a helium vent and a DC power tap in the center of that square island. Not every island didn't have a different um, ecology. Okay, but every island. Is as the game is initially presented to you had a different culture living on it, and the way that it was explained in the game was is that yes, we know that this is set in the 1920s, while this is set in the 1960s. It's not that they can't upgrade their technology to the 1960s; they just prefer it to be a la 1920s. So you could go from the Roaring Twenties to the uh, Jurassic Era, you know, with dinosaurs, to barnstorming age of, of dirigibles and planes, you know, on another one. I mean, there was no limit. Every one could be completely different. Yes, John? Yeah, I think the range was enough that you can have people from Rome show up. As far and yeah, I think 20 as far as 25 the 25th century that yeah, was I the range was, what was the 25th century oh noram oh yeah yeah okay yeah there was a post-apocalyptic killer robot infested uh, you know uh, island yes richard did not mind you going crazy differently with his game you know he would tell you that well this is the way it is but he didn't say then you have to follow the, the the company line. If you wanted to do it somewhere totally different, he was always fine with that. And the oh, yeah. thing was, technically, he started the idea of the hardwired hinterland. It's in the Portals 2 book. I think it's in the 
the positive 100s are like between 50, positive 51 and 100. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, that's, no, positive 101 to positive 125. One of the alts, the alt 8, because I remember it's at the bottom of the page, it's to the hardwired hinterlands. There is a fringe portal that leads to New Akron. So yep. technically, he had the idea for hardwired hinterlands back when he did Portals 2. Right. I mean, the earliest catalog I have of TriTag games, I think, lists Hardwire Hinterland, even though it, it, did, it, was, it was vaporware. It was vaporware for literally decades. Oh, yeah. And, and I've heard, and Bruce ran it, you ran a version of it. Um, uh, I know that uh, Trilobite on his, on his old podcast ran a version of it. And it's highly amenable to, uh, you know, GMs meddling with it. I mean, when I came up with the uh, Fiasco playset for it, I, one of the things that there's a little FAQ in the bag and said, so am I dead? And I said, we'll get back to you on that. We don't know. <laughs> At that point, Richard had basically, you know, had, had put the original TriTech system aside. And, um, and I think that's because he, he really needed to update it. He was more interested in producing new games rather than working on his system. He had tried over the years to make a number of other versions of his system. There were the quick rules. Um, there was the comic book set of rules. Um, you know, I, I have a number of them that I was asked to edit and, uh, and comment on, which I did. Might be one of the reasons why he didn't bring them out. <laughs> I was doing my job. Okay, so whenever you try to model reality, okay, you're always going to have problems. And so a lot of what Richard did was to try to make it simple. And reality is always messy. So, you know, I, I, I mean, the, the fact that Richard came out with a system, I truly applaud because it was revolutionary at the time. And, you know, I still think that, you know, I would like to come uh, work. I'm still right now working on a version of it uh, that I think would be, you know, more modern, more, you know, acceptable to the modern player as far as how the, you know, the, his original rules. So uh, we even tried at one point to come up with a new rule system. I set up a chat on AOL uh, when AOL had RPG chats. I invited everybody to it, including Richard, and I got there and I started talking about how we need to go and just start at the very beginning and question the you know, all the underpinnings of the rule system. And everybody just basically left in disgust because they they had come to work on the next edition and didn't want to be doing stuff like that. I remember that. I was part of that group. Yes, you were invited, and, and you know how some people got really incensed by that. I, I didn't because I because I you know I looked at it and said yeah we need to make changes. <laughs> I, I think that still might have been before I got on the scene. When about was that? AOL had RPG chat sessions. Yeah, mid mid eighties. Yeah, that's when I was running oh, my. God, I didn't even met Rich. I remember I didn't meet him till like ninety three. No, no, it was later because he come out with the with the ninety two versions. That's right. That that was back. That was in 91, 92, 93, That era, because that's when I was running my Bera thirteen game, and my mom passed away during that, and that's pretty much killed my game. I think it was toward the end of the of the last century. So there was Hardware Hinterland. He came out with um, Weird Space. Weird Zone. Which he had been actually been working on for a lot longer than I think. Hard, well, he had been working because I remember looking at a previous version, actually even writing down. 
there was uh, tied to fringeworthy Qaddafi, and this tells you when how far long uh, how long ago Qaddafi tried to fix the problem porn, problem portal in the Rabina Sea Sand Sea, and it ended up flattening that piece of earth. <laughs> right. Well, this particular game, uh, Richard claimed to also be part of the fringe system where you were on a world and uh, basically your house got abducted you know, in the area around your house and thrown into, uh, into this, this weird space, this, this zero gravity space and moved along with other ones. Um, and of course the thing, thing that I had to learn was you weren't moving horizontally, you were moving vertically. You know, the direction you were traveling was either down or up. You weren't going like side side by side. That's in the rules, and I, I was surprised when I read it. I said, "Wait, that's not what I thought." Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. You weren't like islands floating on a sea in the same direction. You were basically, you know, your sh- up up was forward. And, and but the trouble is, he contradicts himself in the actual rules because you basically you fish for things in the in the in the lee of the island. Well, it was all weird. Under, yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, I was I don't remember whether you were going down or you were going up when you were doing this because some things would go by you because they were moving at different rates. So that's and that's how you know you you get attacked by void pirates is because they come close enough that they could just jump off and and come over towards you. I don't recall anybody else doing games where your entire house got abducted and was moving along. Though I there was some like we did have a Bureau 13 story in one of my supplements where there were blocks that moved around from era to era and world to world. But nothing where you were like literally in a big space like that. So th- that was something else that nobody else was doing. You know, the Richard always tried to do big things even though he might have a small setting, like it says you're talking about a, a house or you're talking about a few envir- uh, a few islands next to each other to start off with, there was always a bigger picture that you could go and explore and develop for yourself. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. There was um, Cloisters. Ah, uh, yes. Hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, which was the uh, Canical of Leibowitz role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, in which it's it's like a hundred years after the bombs have dropped, and the primary movers are the is the Catholic Church that is the um, bastions of maintaining technology. Yeah, and and then of course there's this. Uh, well, I I, I want to say humor, but that's like saying you know around Richard like uh, like saying you know air, air, water's wet and 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 you breathe air. But there was beach bunny bimbles with blasters, which was sort of sort of a um, a response to macho women with guns. So macho women with guns came out first. I let's see macho women with guns. Where is that? I'm I'm, I'm looking to do do getting the dates. Humor. This is one of my favorite favorite RPGs, and I've run it at many many conventions because, um, and I I actually on uh, when I had a website, I actually created a whole bunch of characters based upon the pictures of the various people in the um, uh, in, in the book itself, and I gave them backstories and such, and, and I said this is who they are, so you could play it as a role playing game without it being 
it was it was it was a little bit rough. It didn't have the full um, environment, I would say, that most people would feel comfortable with today. See, it was like, okay, you know, th this is what's going on, and you're somebody, and these are your weapons, and these are some of the aliens and what they're like, and this is the people helping them. Go to it. It was a little. It, it really wasn't what I would call. A, there was no campaign set up in it. It was just the background information that you needed in order to make it. And I wanted to add that to it, which is what I did on those pages. Which is why you know every time, pretty much every time that I run a Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters adventure, I'm running Terror at the Mall, but with all that additional flavor that I added to it. And everybody has always loved it. You know, they, they're like, this is a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. Because when you look at it, it looks like exploitation 70s action film. Yeah, um, yeah unlike Macho Women with Guns. <laughs> Which is exactly the same thing, too. Yeah, and it came it came out in 88. Beach Bunny Bimbles came out in 2001. So it was a, there was a bit of a... Uh, actually, the re-release. I think Richard was responding to the re-release in 1990. Uh, so, but yeah. And Bill Levy was the one who uh, illustrated it, right? Yeah. Now, you remember in Macho Man with Guns, Richard was a was a character in there. Ah. Yes, he was. <laughs> which is which is why he responded back with Beach Bunny Bimbles with Blasters later on. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 a, he's a uh, monster you can you can encounter. Oh. <laughs> Well, we know that his name is based upon the uh, Etruscan god of the underworld, so <laughs> it makes a certain amount of sense. But um, yeah, and and the uh, its mate, he, he used the same uh, the, as it was originally published. He used the same system as Duck Trooper, which is where um, this race of humanoid type ducks were coming through egg shaped portals onto the Earth to take us over. And uh, it, it had basically the same structure, the same sparsity of campaign information as Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters. And uh, a lot of people just bought it because it was funny. But it was a big book. I mean, it was uh, about 50 pages, uh, half-page size, um, uh, which would be uh, five and a half um, by uh, four or something like that. You know, basically digest-sized. And uh, it had a lot of information. He, he, Richard, it was one thing that Richard did was he put a lot of guns and, and stuff in his games. If you wanted to blow stuff up, you know, Tritag Games was, was, was definitely ready to help you out. Oh, yeah. And it had power armor in it. We, we did forget one game that came out in the early 90s that he did. Okay. Yeah, Incursion. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to forget. Yeah. Well, yeah, we talked about it. We said that it realized that alien abduction was going to be the next be best thing. And he, he basically said that was coming out. And then a year later, X-Files breaks and, and uh, the rest is history. But uh, yeah, that was your gateway drug. Yeah, I'm sorry, gateway game into, uh, uh, into TriTac, Trav. When I met Richard in the early 90s, my now first ex-wife, my daughter's mom, bought me an, a copy of Incursion and got Rich to autograph it because she knew it would be something I liked. Little did I know that that would be the rabbit hole that I'm still falling through today. And <laughs> actually, no, it, and I've enjoyed every foot of the drop since 92. But 
actually incursion and this is in okay in the pdf version of incursion there's like supplementary things and i will bring up the pdf here because i found it yep uh incursion was supposed to be a rogue 417 model but the idea grew from there and he then moved because rogue 17 is one of the only nerds on french worthy yeah post-apocalyptic a mm-hmm. biological horror but basically it's also a variant Bureau 13 world because in the Rogue 417 model, they said, yeah, they have the Bureau 13 there. He decided to add incursion into the main Bureau 13 world and mm-hmm. linked it. Robert Harrison was dating Joanna Barnes. And Joanna Barnes is one of the iconic incursion characters that gets focus, kidnapped. Focus character, yeah, it's the current yeah. term these days. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, Incursion actually did start originally as a spinoff of Rogue 417. And then he brought it out in 92, along with the reboots, the new editions of Bureau 13, FTL 2448, and Fringeworthy. And it, yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten that you mentioned that a little bit. But yeah, that was another Mm -hmm. one of the games that I thought was very unique and alien abduction games like that. Yeah. I had never seen anything like that. And I think that's what drew me into it. Yeah. They, they hadn't done them before. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't remember any type of, Oh, you've been abducted by this. And I mean, yeah, even in the seventies, we had all the alien abduction. That's when all that stuff was starting. Yeah. And I'm sure that rich, because the Greebles, come on, those are the grays. I mean, just, Oh, oh yeah, there's no question of it. Yeah. But um and and see Richard was also I think was trying to fill in uh genre holes in his lineup, his game lineup because FTL 2448 as John said was was gritty. It was, you know, it was working man, you know, it was uh, kind of Babylon fi- early Babylon 5 level, you know, like the first season. Okay, while um uh, while Incursion was Star Trek level technology, uh, or uh, late, you know, Babylon Five, where they had the White Star and such, yeah, or, or Crusades, yeah, right. Uh, or you could say that uh, FTL was closer to um, Firefly, as far as that kind of technology was concerned. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was gritty, you know, things didn't always work right, you know, but you could cobble something together if you were smart and you, you know, you had enough, you know, things to, to, <laughs> to basically tear apart to keep the other part working, you know, steal from Peter to, to fix Paul. Yeah. And he, and later on toward the end there, he was also seeing elements of it in the expanse. So, yeah. Right, so he he was trying to fill in things that, that he he didn't have, okay, and he didn't go into pure science fiction fantasy, okay, until he did Easy Space. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. And that's one of the latest books he came out with. He only came out with that like within the last two years. Um, you know, you want to talk about that, uh, Trav? Yeah, basically, if you remember the old 50s pointy rocket ships that took off straight up and landed straight down, um, very pulp-influenced, and the best way to describe it is as if Robert Heinlein developed the space program. And it was basically, hey, we're going to reverse-engineer the stuff we found at Roswell, 
and explore the universe universe from there. Which is funny because there are several worlds in Fringe worthy, and there a lot of them are alts that I noticed. Oh, okay, you know this one here. Yeah, they refitted stuff from Roswell, and I flip more a couple pages, and there's one here, and I. Since reading Easy Space, and you can refer to our episode on that review, I think mm-hmm. I found exactly where in the fringe paths the actual Easy Space Earth is. And it, it is a unique callback to that era. I want to run in a campaign on it. I'm not sure what group I would do it with, but it would be cool to do just because it harkens back to that old pulp era Rocket Man type, you know, with the bubble-headed, um, the bubble-headed space helmet and the, <laughs> the '70s sparkly spacesuit. Yeah, yeah. So what they essentially did was they came up with a with a star drive and a in-system propulsion system that was simple enough that you could go into space, even though everything else that you need in space wasn't there. So you didn't have you know, like, you know, big blaster laser weapons initially, your spacesuits were the primitive spacesuits that, that were really much not much more than high-altitude, you know, uh, suits that fire pilots would use. And so you, you, had, so you had that whole, you know, 1950s, you know, uh, X-1, you know, destination moon kind of thing where you didn't have it all nice and pretty and slick and everything else, you, but, you, but you had this this uh, reliable system of getting you to and from the various places you wanted to go and without you know having to say, well, yeah, but if you have that, then that means you have to have all this other stuff which changes the game entirely. And it didn't because it was so simple how he was able to get the star system propulsion systems working. It was almost black box-ish, but it was, you know, that, you know, it, it, he could concentrate on the other uh, more adventurous aspects of space travel and uh, and exploration. It's funny, Bruce, that you mentioned that that the plans that were made that anybody could do it. I call it. I, I I'm sitting there looking at this game. I go, so it's kind of like open source rocket science. And there are other games that Richard has, you know, he has in files that was not Easy Space that has that aspect as well that were never published. Uh, yeah, I mean, nice. The interesting about Easy Space is that it all wraps around these strange crystals that, that once you break contact with the ground, you can pretty much not worry about having tons of fuel. You just put power to the crystals and you move. Gee, or does that sound familiar to you guys? Not at all. <laughs> not at no. all. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it, I'm looking at it right now, going through through them, and yes, it, it's it is so fifty. I mean, the picture of the guy in the in the suit that's Richard, circa 1977. I remember seeing that suit. Uh, he made that helmet with a beach ball and fiberglass. <laughs> <laughs> but his his system, his space system, allowed, as you said, everyday people to be able to you know, go explore space. I mean, the ships were cheap. You know, you could theoretically, you know, um, you know, um, get a mortgage and buy, you know, the the Rolling Stones uh, was a novel that came out, you know, back in, in, uh, in, in the 70s. And uh, when I read it, it was all about a family that decides to go explore the solar system. So they go out and they get themselves a secondhand space 
craft, you know, and they outfit it properly and they go taking off. And you could do the same thing in this game. Oh, you know, the Rolling Stones actually was uh, 50s. It was one of his juvenile, during his juvenile period, it was one of his juveniles, the Rolling Stones. Was it that far back? Yep. Well, I read it in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the 50s, I wasn't reading. I yeah. Well, neither was I. But then again, I read that when I was 12. So, yeah, 70s, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the point still was is that you know it, it allowed you to do that kind of pulpish uh, space travel without you having to basically totally put your brain on hold, you know, and uh, it you just could basically you know say okay this is the this is the system and, and the proposal system this is how it worked this is the star system this is how it worked this is the holes this is how they work. Everything else, you know, you could make it, you know, 1950s, 1970s, 1980s, wherever you wanted to set your your thing. And, you know, you could go disco to the stars, whatever you wanted to do, because the main things that keep us from going out into space and exploring the solar system right now, we're taking care of, you know, as as basic tenants in the book in in the game yeah it basically it's cheap and any any and any garage mechanic could put one together i have to rely on you guys uh i don't know of anybody else who was putting out that kind of uh pulp science fiction uh, the, uh, i don't know if the buck rogers um role-playing game from tsr uh, qualifies. I uh, know, but there's there's Star Patrol. There's um, a, a few out there. Star Patrol. And I can't remember all the names, but uh, I happen to have most of them. Uh, but yeah, there there are several games out there that basically all these games you'll never play, right, John? I actually have played Star Patrol. Star Patrol is is is, is falls into the beer and pretzel game uh genre and there's another one where you actually have cards and you put the cards down and you put the card another card next to it. Yeah, I have a character. But how about role-playing games? Real role-playing. Well, they games. are role-playing games. It's just they're incredibly simple. They're they're really geared toward a specific genre. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. And then Richard came out with a bunch of really silly games while he was working on uh, Bureau Thirteen Brass and Steam. Eradicator. The toaster basically becomes sentient. And tries to destroy the family, and 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 basically humanity's on the run from a rampant AI. Yeah, actually, Hereditary is actually an old game of his, old game idea of his. I remember back in late '80s, early '90s, he asked me for some uh, some background text about these. I mentioned this before, von Neumann machines that arrived in in Earth space, and they were taking over and doing all this stuff, and basically, you know causing mayhem and i think that's basically where eradicator came from that concept and he just he modified over time as he went along and decided yeah we don't want to buy new machines because people go what's a von neumann machine no your ai goes sentient your 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 smart toaster goes sentient and, and attacks you i mean the that's the basis of the game <laughs> you know and and all these items were actually already sentient you know they were um, you know, they were supposed to be able to tell, you know, what you wanted and you could program them easy. When they all got networked together, suddenly they made a quantum leap in intelligence and they were all super, you know, they were now, you know, intelligent enough to say humans must die. So yeah. it's like talkie toaster from Red Dwarf going exactly. homicidal. So you want some toast? Nobody <laughs> wants toast. No <laughs> one no baguettes. No, <laughs> no smegging flapjacks. Oh, so you're a waffle man. Yeah. 
How about but bagels? No, Eradicator, I remember <laughs> looking that over, and I think it was like either North Korean or South Korean computer hacker did something and a virus, and it originally didn't work out, so they killed him. But then somehow the virus ended up getting out in the world anyways, and that's what caused everything to just go mm-hmm. belly up. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm looking at – I looked at that. I remember we did the review a couple years back, and I'm like, okay, yeah. I could see where the, you know, welcoming the robot overlords and then gunning them down. Yeah. I, I, I that, that would be another quick mini shot campaign that I would do, or I would throw that in as a stop oh, yeah. on the fringe paths. Oh, it's a con game. Yeah, that could easily be a stop on the fringe paths. I'm sure yeah. if I look through my, the big, the big blue binder that I have of all four, I'm sure I could find the Eradicator world somewhere mm-hmm. on there. <laughs> yeah. And then he came out with um, the pony game. Yeah. Murder Hoof. Yeah. Murder Hoof, which is a very um, misleading game. Very, 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 very annoyed by ponies. I want to. (laughs) I'll let you. I think I had gave you a copy of Murder Hoof. I think we galvanized... uh, our, our co-host, tell us about Murder Hoof. Short version: Take My Little Pony, make him homicidal. <laughs> yeah, from what I, yeah, from what I understood, and as I said, it's been a while because again, this was probably a year and a half, two years ago when we reviewed this one. So, and I can't believe I know these names. Basically, you have Pinkie Pie, Rarity, Princess Celestia wanting to kill you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's funny because they come through the portal and they're all happy and they are as you know them but there is what what did they call it a glamour field and once you get within that glamour field they're more centaur like they're not ponies with just the anthropomorphic facial features they have the torso and then the horse body and they have the glamour field as well as a force field so if you even want to try to kill them as they're trying to kill you you got to get in close guns and stuff don't work Yes, I love it. You know, it, 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 the focus character for the game is Amy Wilson, pony killer. Well, it's funny because Rich has made it known, had made it known a lot. He was not a fan. So yeah. this was his, and I'm, I'm going to say this about Rich, and he would probably agree. This was his middle finger to that fandom. <laughs> The, the thing is, you know, this oh, is the really fandom. That, another name. Come on. The, the thing is, this is the fandom that also has uh, uh, post-apocalyptic pony games. So it's right in it's right in their own genre. But when I I remember when I posted this, the pony the pony fandom went, yes, again another game we can play. It's like he didn't the middle finger them. He just gave them something more to play. <laughs> uh, it's, the fandom's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. you know. <laughs> in, and and portals three, the murder world, the murder hoof world is there, and it's a prime. It's not an alt, which means you have eight portals of fun to go through to try to get killed by ponies. Yeah, right. And to show you his level of commitment to this game, you know, most people would just consider this just to be a knockoff or something. He actually had miniatures made for this. My buddy Andy Barlow for Dark mm-hmm. Platypus Games. Yeah, I've I've seen the miniatures. They're fantastic. Um, couple yeah. years ago, I believe at Confusion, he had him there. And just, as I said, I've known Andy, got 10 years now. And yeah, his miniatures are the real deal. He puts a lot of work into them. 
Um, yeah, and just the fact that he not only did the game, but the miniatures. Yeah, you could tell that Rich had what was a a, a bee in his bonnet about the whole thing that he really yeah. wanted to show. No, this is how I feel about this. Oh yeah. Game. Well, I I created some of the artwork for it too. So yeah, I had fun. <laughs> Have we forgotten any of Richard's games? Let me look real quick. You know, we just go up to the... I mean, the ones that have actually been published, because there's still a few that he talked about yeah. and discussed it with us, but they never got even close enough to be published. Yeah, hanging around with Richard was always fun because he'd start talking about some idea he had, and you'd be like, oh, man, when will that come out? And he'll say, well, i got to get this done, but, you know, soon, soon. <laughs> oh, it, it was worse than that. Bruce, he'd start talking as though you knew he, what he was talking about. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, because great minds think alike, right? So that's the long of, um, of Richard's uh, industrious and, and creative career as the owner and uh, chief designer for TriTac Games. And uh, most of us have been uh, along it most of the way. Uh, Trav coming in a, a, a um, you know about halfway through but certainly has shown his medal in in um, supporting it with being the uh, the person who got uh, bureau 13 the d20 finished you know a massive job that it was hey 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 the head the head of the project is only good as the team that I had pointing from <laughs> these two I, I kind of put this in my own words, on Rich's Facebook page, I put my feelings about him passing and everything and how I regarded him and how I know he regarded me. Mm-hmm. This is It's a debt that I know damn well I'll never be able to repay, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. I'm not going to try. Yeah. And with work here with these two fine gentlemen and Josie mm-hmm. here and just down the line with how TriTac will go, he put me on a path that I have no problem continuing. And, and so just with everything that Rich gave me to work with, it, it's stunning the legacy that he has left behind with the man's knowledge and creativity. And and I call it the Tahulkaverse. It is just the whole metaverse that he has. That's the name I chose for it. And with the, the amount of games and the length and breadth and variety of them, it's going to be a legacy that will endure for an extremely long time. There'll never be another Richard Taholka. He was a one of a kind, and uh, he engendered deep feelings of everybody who was around him. We're all grateful, and I think better for having known him. And he became a better person also because he brought people around him who made him better and kept him working and kept him inspired. And I'm really going to miss him. Yeah. And so I hope, you know, some of you out there, you know, finally get a slight taste of what it was like to work with, you know, Richard Deholka and, um, and to say, you know, Gary Gygax isn't, you know, the greatest game designer who ever lived. But Richard was proud to know him and, and, and to consider Dave Arnes and a friend of his. You know, these people, though they were in competition with each other, most of them had a strong feeling of brotherhood, 
uh, with each other. And uh, the best time at Gen Con for all of them was when they got to take their product and run around Gen Con and trade it for each other's product. The, the various forums and posts and mm-hmm. online just, and yeah, just the outpouring of love and respect and admiration. The research over the past couple of weeks that I've seen, there will be no other like him. The best we can do is through the games, playing and promoting them, mm-hmm. extend that essence of the man and in some measure that will give him a form of immortality. I'm certainly a much better gamer you know, and a game designer than I was when I started, and I certainly lay it all at his feet. Uh, you know, that and hard work. Uh, and uh, I think Richard recognized uh, potential in other people and, and was quite the mentor. We all owe a great debt to Richard, not just for what he did as far as his games, but how he nurtured the community. Um, t- turning a failed comic book uh, group in uh, uh, in Detroit into the Order of Leibowitz, who then went on to uh, get Thunderhead Games, w- which was originally just a gaming center, on their feet. And they're now a company today that has put out a wonderful uh, eulogy for Richard that I recommend that everybody read if you haven't had a chance. Uh, it's, it's truly a wonderful thing to read. Much better than we were because of him. I had never thought of making my own campaign with anything before. Seeing how I've managed how we've managed to put the Trinity and Pokemon together, <laughs> I'd never thought of doing something like that before. So you kind of got the second hand experience from Rich through me and through Bruce yes. and John helping out. Yeah. And as Richard nurtured us, you've nurtured uh, Josie, Trav. Again, thanks everybody for being here and all of you for listening. And uh, the TriTac podcast will continue, but we will have to wait until next week. So until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the TriTech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.